Today on Small Shop Fundraising, we're going to take a peek behind the curtain. We're going to look at PwC's 24th Annual Global CEO Survey. And this survey looks at how CEOs are going to realign to a post-pandemic world. You might be wondering, why is this important to nonprofits? Well, it could very well impact how you relate to them as far as giving, partnership, and engagement. Stay tuned to the very end because that's when you're going to hear how AI is learning about diversity, equity, and inclusion. All this coming up. Hello and welcome to Small Shop Fundraising, a podcast dedicated to small to medium-sized nonprofits and the topics and issues facing them today. My name is Liz Heck and I'm your host. Today we're going to do something a little different. We're going to take a look behind the curtain of what CEOs are thinking and feeling for 2021. I was sent a really wonderful survey by our guest today from the PwC website. I'll put the link in the show notes. And it's mainly a leadership agenda to take on tomorrow. It's a 24th annual survey of global CEOs. It was conducted this year in January and February to explore the views of over 5,000 chief executives around the world on how they are reinventing their companies to mitigate global disruptions, kind of like the pandemic, and ensuring sustainable growth. And our tour guide for reviewing this agenda and the, and the information, the data that came from it, is Mike Finley. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, Liz. I'm happy to be here. I'm so glad for you uh, to spend some time with us today. And I, I think you are one of the better, uh, what I'm calling you as a tour guide, it, because of your vast knowledge and experience in the uh, different roles that you've had in the different companies that you've worked with. Uh, Mike, can you kind of tell us about your leadership journey and preferably in the last, I don't know, 15 years instead of uh, from birth? <laughs> uh, just kind of tell us a- about yourself and, and uh, then we'll talk about the survey. Sure, absolutely. Well, you know, sometimes... Sometimes to really tell the story, you have to go back to the beginning, and uh, but maybe now I should go back even further. Uh, just kidding. The, the, <laughs> um, my journey, let's say, let's say the last 15 years. So I've uh, since since graduating from uh, from university, which was uh, Transylvania in uh, Lexington, Kentucky. Since since graduating 30 years ago, uh, I've been in technology um, in lots of different countries, uh, lots of different industries, but in in technology all all around the world. And um, the last 15 years or so has, have really been focused around the idea of uh, using uh, machine learning, using artificial intelligence to enhance uh, different kinds of uh, business. So, uh, for example, uh, working in the video game space, you know, using AI to make a more interesting world for people to play in, use, using AI in uh, more commercial spaces, for example, being able to, uh, to minimize waste and to be able to optimize uh, assortment of products in retail in uh, medical applications, being able to distinguish, you know, cancerous images from non-cancerous. So lots of different applications of that sort. Um, and my specialization really is um, in the, the technology itself, sure, the math and the, and the science behind it and the technology to implement it, but also uh, recruiting and building organizations that are, are able to deliver those solutions at scale. 
um, because it's not not just good enough to sort of sit in your garage and make something happen. You have to be able to, to actually execute and deliver on it at scale with proven results. So that's that's been really the foundation of my career. And I've and I've uh, I've taken it always in technology settings, but I've taken it uh, everything from executive leadership, you know, to marketing, to basically business development, right? Any, anything that was necessary to move the efforts forward to deliver the solutions for uh, the, the the target that I was after. Sure. So, so Mike has not only been executive, been an executive in the companies that that he is referencing, but I want to make sure the audience understands that you go into other companies or recruit for other companies, or move the needle, kind of like what you were talking about for other companies' projects. Hmm. So you've had this this array of leadership opportunities within your own organizations and companies, but also with other organizations. So. One of the many reasons why I felt like Mike was a great, going to be a great tour guide for discussing what CEOs are thinking about right now as we go into the second quarter of 2021. So thank you so much, Mike, for agreeing to do that. So as we move into this survey, the three main things that this this survey uncovers, it seems like, is the three things CEOs are thinking about is growth strategies, planned investments, and building trust. So, gosh, it sounds very high level. And I wonder if from your past experiences, are these any different from years past? And do you think they're accurate? Yeah, so uh, great question. And uh, I, I would say that, that they're, they're universal themes, but what typically happens is the the sequence of them the order of importance changes over time right so uh so famously growth and profitability are two that at, at any given time uh really only one of them can be the focus right you're, you're either building your business and you're you're getting praised by you know wall street and other investors because of the growth that you have or you're throwing off profits um and you're getting praised by you know wall street and other investors because of the profitability that you have and doing both at the same time is a pretty rare space, right? You know, GE did it for 20 years um, at one stage, but but it's difficult to do otherwise. So growth and, and profitability, those are universals, but generally um, generally it's kind of a pick one at a time and, and which one's important. As far as investment planning, again, this is one that's um, it comes and goes over time, right? You want to you want to uh, decide: Are you growing your business organically, or are you uh, investing in your investing in competitors that you want to bring into your space, investing in new markets that you want to uh, be able to get to? You know, a lot of what I deal with for my customers today is using machine learning to choose how to invest that next dollar. Do I invest it in entering a new market? Do I invest it in uh, discounts for my consumers? Do I invest it in better supply uh, chain? Do I invest it in, in growing my own organization and, and rewarding my people? So, so that idea of how uh, how are investments going to happen, what to do with that limited capital, that's again, a, a perennial one. And then finally building trust, you know, this one this one has really come about probably exacerbated more so by, by COVID and by the, you know, sort of the, the weird environment we've had in the last year, simply because, uh, you know, people don't know who to trust, right? They don't know mm-hmm. if, if decisions are being made well, on their behalf, uh, they don't know what the consequences of things that are uh, that they're experiencing are. So I'd say this one is—it's always been there, but it hasn't necessarily been uh, kind of that number one, um, the, number one that's out there. You know, if you if you go back 30 years, a lot of companies had as their 
uh, mission was to build value for their shareholders, right? And that, that seems funny to us now uh, because it's such a, a very sort of top-heavy version of a mission statement, but it's true. It's what a lot of companies had as their as their mission. And if you fast forward into you know more modern times, this idea of building trust and and having something other than profitability uh, and growth be the bottom line, um, that 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 notion is something that's spreading rapidly and is really helping consumers make decisions that you know, that feed into a lot of the more global issues like sustainability, you know, climate change, things that people truly care about and that, that allow them to really understand companies from a perspective other than just that, uh, the optics uh, that money, um, that right. money provides. Right, right. So, so let's dig into each one of these different categories more deeply. Uh, growth through mergers and acquisitions or M&A uh, is one of the, the main ways that the survey says that CEOs are thinking of, of growing their business over the next 12 months. It says over 57% of U.S. CEOs plan to pursue new mergers and acquisitions mm-hmm. compared to the 38% globally. Oh, and, and before I ask the question, why this is, was interesting to me is because a lot of the nonprofit industry, specifically in, in Kentucky, a survey was completed at the end of 2020 and it's a similar strategy, except instead of it calling being called M&A or mergers and acquisitions, it's called partnerships and collaborations. So not not necessarily the same, I guess, structure of how this growth is going to occur, but similar in the ide- ideology of it. Will the for-profit industry go through another round of layoffs due to these mergers, mm-hmm. which could impact potentially the nonprofit industry around the country? And how will it impact giving of these corporate entities? Mm. Yeah, so uh, you probably have to remind me to come back to some of those secondary points as we go sure, through. Sure. But but let me take a stab um, at this. So um, so M and A M and A periods, right? This is sort of the one of those pendulums, penduli that swings. You know, mergers and acquisition periods also also called just consolidation in an industry uh, on the for profit side. Those those happen for very simple reasons. They happen because the valuation of the combined entity is uh, higher than the amount that you'd have to pay to get the other entity, right? So, for example, I was part of a of a of a very large M and A um, that happened as a one point two billion dollar acquisition. I was the acquired, and um, or my company, not not me, obviously. Uh, I was the acquired, and um, and in that environment, uh, the reason they acquired us they, they is that once the two companies were combined the value of the combined entity was uh, incrementally more than they had to pay to get my company, right? right. So very simple, very simple math. Um, that, that is the time when you want to go consolidate, right? If you famously, um, uh, Hyzenga and waste management consolidated the, the, the trash pickup industry uh, because uh, he found that there was a very simple equation that said, if I can add a route that has 500 houses, It'll cost me a million dollars, and my company will, will be worth two million dollars more. And right. so, you know, I, don't quote me on those numbers exactly, but the point is that's when uh, mergers and acquisitions happen, right? So then, let's think about the non in the nonprofit space, right? Well, um, obviously, the currencies are a little bit different, right? Sure. You're not you're not trying to say the valuation is based on you know the profits that you can throw off and the growth rate and all that, but um, you know, if you look at how companies, sorry, uh, how nonprofits raise funds and how nonprofits 
serve their sectors, the reason to um, enter into partnerships and collaborations would be to improve those ratios, to, right, to improve the ratios um, that uh, donors are looking for, to improve the ability to reach uh, populations, to find right. economies of scale, you know, in the consolidated operations, right? That's, yeah. that's, the, that's the reason to do it. There's not any, um, any uh, magic uh, that, that makes one time better than another. It's literally if uh, the combined entities work better. And what you'll see is that these waves of consolidation end when the valuations don't rise anymore, um, or in the case of nonprofits, when the ability to raise money, the ability to, to attract talent, the ability to serve um, serve the guests of the target population, when that ability diminishes and suddenly it's no longer useful to be larger, then you'll see the the end of that wave, right? So mm -hmm. it's it's a natural cycle of you know uh, organic growth in the marketplace of small companies, of small nonprofits targeting niche. Uh, environments and then the consolidation of those as uh, the valuations or as the ability to deliver services improves with scale, right? So it's a really natural kind of a process. So it's not new. This not isn't at all. new because of the pandemic. We're all facing these new mergers and acquisitions or collaborations and partnerships. Is there any difference in how? Well, it's it's the kind of it's the kind of thing that happens on a time scale that that m makes us forget, right? So, in other words, something happens every year. We're going to remember. Hey, it's it gets sure. cold. It gets cold in the winter. Okay, <laughs> we remember that. Uh, something happens every every ten years. Uh, I don't know. There's there's a solar sunspot cycle. It's like eleven years. We kind of remember that that maybe that's there, or maybe a leap year that happens every four years. Oh yeah, I remember. We're supposed to you know change the the calendar by a day. Um, something happens every 20 years. It's almost like a generational event. Sure. Okay. And, and basically we treat it like it's brand new. You know, that we, we treat it like, yeah, I remember when the, the I remember the, the depression. I read about that in books, but let me tell you, this thing we're going through, it's much worse than that thing ever was, right? <laughs> um, you know, in, in, in reality, history repeats itself, right? And, and you, you know, we're just doomed to suffer the consequences. Now, it doesn't mean that it's always the same, right? I mean, there was, there was a brutal wave of acquisitions that, that happened, um, you know, basically management buyouts and takeovers and things that happened in the 80s that was uh, based on a different approach, at least in the for-profit world, right? In that environment, it was kind of going the other way. It was saying, if I take over something and break it up, I can sell the pieces for more than, uh, than right. the total is worth, right? And there were, there were many famous examples, you know, of CEOs that just moved from company to company breaking them up and selling off the pieces right so that's a that's a different kind of of environment um and so so it does it does change uh with the times certainly with the the attitudes of wall street which is fundamentally in the business in the for-profit world the source of a lot of the money it changes a lot it also um it, it can change in the non-profit world with you know with the attitudes of donors and frankly with the financial fortunes of donors right because as as those uh sources of income become greater or lesser right as we as we either we see a, a growth in the the high-end in income donors um as opposed right. to maybe flat years for those high income donors, you're going to see more and less ability to generate the funds that are necessary to run the nonprofit operations. And, and that's going to result in some, some changes. But uh, fundamentally, there is a cycle there to be observed over time. And, um, and the difference, differences from one cycle to the next is maybe the lessons to, that we can learn from. And so going back to the giving portion of you, talk, you, you were talking about uh, with your example, do mergers and acquisitions impact giving from corporate entities, in your opinion? 
Um, yeah, so my, my experience with this has been that it's uh, very one-sided, uh, that basically the acquiring entity, um, which isn't always the, 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 the larger one, uh, the, the acquiring entity basically has policies that are uh, propagated and that, that the, you know, the mission, maybe the mission or the specific policies and whatnot of the entity being acquired are essentially removed. And that's, that's not unlike some things related to branding, some things related to benefits, but, um, but it's certainly very different than, you know, for example, product lines, uh, uh, for example, you know, customer contracts, right? Those things survive the acquisitions and live on, but, but some, you know, some things uh, like the, the, the giving policy and whatnot, typically those stay with the board, those stay with the CEO, um, and typically that, that person is going to preserve uh, what their objectives were from the, you know, from the, from the original purpose. Okay, yeah, so if you're if if you're a nonprofit in the U.S. and um, one of your main corporate donors who gives a, you know a sponsorship to your event or or gives a, a large gift to one of your programs, has that particular entity or that corporate gr- uh, group has been acquired, and you're the you know you're the leadership of that nonprofit organization who's counting on that that dollar. And you're mm-hmm. wringing your hands, wondering what's going to happen to that that giving mm-hmm. program within that uh, organization that's being acquired. Yep. There's a good possibility that potentially it could still. I mean, you're not with. I'm not saying 100% guarantee, of course, but there's a there's a good probability that those programs are going to maybe stay put. Yeah, that, that's that, that's uh, if if there if your donor is doing the the acquiring, then yes, I'd say there's a good chance that that's going to continue. Okay. If they're if they're being acquired, that's yes. when you should probably go on the offensive, right? In other okay. words, um, and l- let me let me take it a, a step. Uh, let me go one step further back. So, if somebody that's a donor for you is being uh, is grooming themselves for acquisition, right? And they they may not be able to tell you that. Sometimes it's clear. Um, but sometimes it's uh, it's it's closely held that if they're grooming for acquisition, number one, you'll probably see their ability to do cash donations decrease. Right. right? They may still have all the employee programs, volunteer time, you know, talent, all those sorts of efforts, you know, marketing related activities they'll be able to do. But you'll see that their their cash donations go down. Why? Because they're trying to make their balance sheet look better. They're trying to position themselves uh, as having a higher value. And typically. A dollar that I give away doesn't give me more than a dollar of goodwill back in value. Uh, if if I'm trying to sell my company, it's not always the case. Um, it could certainly uh, be the case if there's you know if there, there's some sort of an issue that that that, that business is trying to overcome. If there's some sort of an obligation uh, that's associated with those gifts um, over time, then then it may not be the case that they that they they change it. But you, you will know if the if if there's a downward trend that doesn't appear to be explained. From a company that is in an industry that is consolidating, then you can you can be fairly certain that they're either uh, trying to protect their cash in order to fend off any potential buyers, or that they're basically trying to protect their cash um, in order to look better for for potential buyers that are that are after them. Okay. Okay. So, so that's a, that's yep. a great red flag. Mm-hmm. For, it is a uh, great red flag. Yeah. For for yep. someone to, to is are there others that people should look that nonprofits should look for? You know because. A lot of nonprofits, yes. they put a lot of weight behind corporate giving. Sure. And if this is something on top of mind for CEOs across the country of mergers and acquisitions or yeah. things to watch out for, 
Um, do you right. have any others that people should well, think about? Yeah, certainly any kind of a CEO change. You know, obviously a, a major event like an acquisition leads to that in most mm -hmm. cases. Uh, but but it but it doesn't necessarily take that right. A CEO that's retiring or a CEO that's that's being replaced. You know, in a in a super competitive environment, right? That happens. Uh, if there's any significant turnover in a board, um, you know, th those are things that that because at the end of the day, the the giving is going to be sponsored by somebody, right? It's going to be sponsored by some aspect of the company. It's not just the business, right? There's there's somebody that's behind that giving, um, that's making the case for it. And if there's any change in that, then that's an important red flag, as you're saying, to, to notice. But it's also, it's also important to stay ahead of those things and basically protect those donations by getting ahead of those trends, right? So if you know that there is heavy consolidation going on um, inside inside a business, right? You know, maybe in the construction industry or the, the trend for law firms to, to go national or whatever. Whatever the industry is that that you're um, receiving gifts from, if there is a trend in that industry for consolidation, and you know that you're depending on them, then basically you want to start defending your position and that gift to them. You want to be explaining to them why the goodwill that they're going to receive from that donation is part of how they're going to be successful, right? You want to okay. you want to explain to them their uh, how it's it's all the things that you know are benefiting, right? That mm -hmm. that it's easier to recruit people into organizations that are making um, that are making a fantastic difference in the community. Uh, it's easy to recruit people into businesses that are looking at the long-term effects of the work that they do and making sure that they mitigate the, any, any of those adverse impacts, right? You want to be able to, to demonstrate that, uh, you know, a track record, <clears throat> for example, of tenure for employees, right? Because having a, having a low tenure for employees is never, uh, is never a good thing for a business, right? You want to, you want to demonstrate that you've got employees that are sticking around for a long time and that that is somehow part of the engagement of those employees uh, in your in your nonprofit programs right in your donations you want to show how all those things are important and so that you can again continue to lean into this so that basically so the business isn't just being positioned based on you know physical assets and cash on hand and you know and growth percentages uh, but but is also actually being valued for its goodwill right for the the um, the aspects that have made it the great business that it is, right? A, uh, you know, a, a business that's that's ranked as a great place to work, for example, by some of these national surveys, that yeah. will always show up um, in in how that business is valuing itself. It'll be part of these subjective valuation components, and you want you want the donations to your organization to make it into that list. Why is that important to that business? How can it be part of their success story? Not just part of your success story. Uh, as being successful getting money from them, but part of their success story being uh, part of the community that they're in. If you can guarantee that, then then essentially you are, um, you're putting a balance, a, a safeguard against being kicked out um, when there is an acquisition or even when there's just right. defensive moves being put in place. Right, right. So stay ahead of, of the trend. That's, that's some really great advice. You know, here locally in Kentucky, we're seeing some big moves in uh, nationally known food chains, and then also in the healthcare industry. So it's very timely, this this conversation that we're having, especially in the region that, that we're in. So, and I'm assuming a lot of that could be seen around the country as well with uh, people stepping down or retiring, leadership moving around a little bit or, or as their sure. priorities change due to things that are disrupting the environment. Uh, Absolutely. Are, yeah. Like, I mean, like uh, you know, right, right. Exactly. And, and people have realized that talent is available everywhere. They're not limited right. to their local markets for talent. Sure. That's been a big disruptive change. 
obviously uh, people are realizing that uh, remote uh, schooling is is an option and so I've been associated with a charter school for a long period of time as a member and and um, chairman of their board <clears throat> and uh, I can tell you that that this idea of uh, people being able to choose you know with their with their mouse and keyboard which school to go to mm-hmm. as opposed to having to choose with the wheels on their car you know that that's going to make a very very different a uh, very big difference in terms of what uh, of what happens with charter schools and with education in kind of in this post covid era and it's just that our our eyes have been opened by it you know we have to we have to realize all the permanent changes that are going to come and you know and the things that aren't permanent like my opinion travel is going to come back and it's going to yeah. come back roaring because face to face is important uh, in business, right? And so I don't expect that to disappear. But I do expect, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the massive differences in uh, income by geography is going to, at least going to fade a little bit, right? Because, because people don't, people flock to places where incomes are high, and then these, those places get crowded and nobody likes it. Well, if, if you can go somewhere else and still get that high income because of the function you do, not because mm-hmm. of where you live, then you're going to see that happen more and more. And, um, you know, we've even uh, over time, we've tried to position ourselves in cities um, so that we have offices in more than one place. We have offices in kind of the, the cool place that's uh, a really nice trendy area for the young singles. And then we have, uh, you know, offices in more established areas that are convenient to young families. Right. And um, and that that sets up kind of a pipeline for people to be able to stay with us uh, throughout their career without having to ever commute too far and still get to the lifestyle that they're after. So if, you know, being remote suddenly allows that, but on a much, much larger scale, I think that's going to be the kind of change that's here to stay. Sure, absolutely. And that could impact nonprofits in a big way over time, because now these young families or these singles are living not in the high density areas or locations that pay high annual salaries. They can then begin to open their doors to more than just the people who are, you know, 25 mm-hmm. miles away from them. It's, it's a, more of a national arrangement with individual donors specifically. Right. Um, so I'd like to move to the part of the survey about building trust with going back to the survey that we were talking about. It says U.S. CEOs want to handle ESG disclosures differently in the year ahead. And ESG is short for environmental, societal, and governance disclosures. It says that um, more than a third of CEOs are adopting new ESGs disclosures and enhancing reviews on their disclosures. First of all, what does that mean? And um, and we'll move from there. Sure. Uh, I mean, look, in, in one, one way to look at this is to say that the, the attitude that we have associated with the millennial generation for some time, right? The, the, the attitude of, hey, sustainability matters, quality of life matters, those kinds of trends, right? Those are becoming more mainstream. That's what it means. That's all it means, uh, oh. fundamentally. It means that companies are under pressure to say more concretely and specifically about what they're doing on these environmental, social, and governance issues, rather than kind of uh, saying, like I said, you know, 30 years ago, uh, our, our company exists to make profit for our shareholders, right? All the way to the other extreme, you know, our company exists to make the planet a better place. We're somewhere on that journey. We're closer. We're over the hump, right? We're not just trying to make more money that that creates social inequality, but instead we're trying to say, hey, let me prove that I can make money uh, for my shareholders, but not harm the environment, not create additional social inequality, 
and for Pete's sake, not not violate you know the trust um, that should be protected by by good governance, right? So that that's what's fundamentally behind this, and I think it reflects the fact that you know the millennial generation is moving into positions of power, Absolutely. moving into positions uh, as buyers. You know, there's a huge boom in in uh, home building right now mm-hmm. because uh, a lot of millennials have decided that it's okay to buy a home; you don't have to rent, and so it's driven like one of the largest booms in home building and that coming into these new homes they're looking for green features right they're looking for you know places where they don't have to drive so far they're looking for reasonable carbon footprint homes they're looking for uh, new technologies of course and the that same that same effect is reflected not just in the buying side but in the producing side right you're seeing leaders who are now from this generation and they're coming into it serving uh, people that they know have have multiple bottom lines right not just looking for you know the cheapest car they can get but they're they're also looking for the cheapest car they can get made by a company that doesn't abuse human rights that is offering the best fuel economy that's possible and uh, and heck if the whole thing is local that's even better mm-hmm. right so they're looking deeper into these organizations that yeah. uh, these businesses that they can buy from or align themselves with that's right. I think I think uh, yeah, deeper deeper in the sense that um, you know they're not looking at I don't know do, are are these cars made safely right because I think that depth has always been there right they're not looking at are these earnings per share real are they repeatable because again there've been analysts looking deeply at businesses for a long long time it's more a question of saying hey I, I know they're making good cars or good phones or or, or good good chicken breasts but how are they doing that are they doing that in a way that's not harmful are they not, you know, the key phrase is hidden externalities, right? Are they not putting costs somewhere else, uh, like in people's lungs, um, and and making us pay for it in a way that's not directly reflected in, you know, the money that's being spent, right? The, the whole idea that you can buy green power on your power bill, you can literally choose to spend more money to get power that is from a greener source. If that's not voting with your dollars, I don't know right. what is. And, right. and we're seeing higher and higher adoption of it because people... Uh, understand that this is a priority and CEOs are listening. So how do you think that that type of thinking could impact the nonprofit industry? Uh, Yeah, so another good question. I think, you know, to the extent that, for example, uh, you have a donor that, to to your business, you have a donor that is not providing good governance or good environmental supports, it's a double-edged sword, right? On one hand, that donor is likely to need you to help themselves, not greenwash or not, you know, hide uh, their sins, but to basically uh, paint a better picture of what they do. So it's an opportunity for you to uh, to become an active part of their picture. Uh, but but the flip side of it is, you know, you could be you could have some backlash from that, right? If they're if they are using a donation to you to greenwash themselves to cover up some of the, those sins, then then that that could have a, a backlash. And and you know, again, th- this the same principle as you should invest your money in places that that are you know that have significant ESG standards. You should seek donors from places that have significant ESG standards or. Uh, or make yourself part of how they get significant ESG right. standards, right? Um, and I, I think it can be it can go both ways. So, a, as an example, if there is a, a nonprofit that is that is seeking, you know, that that is solving, a, let's say, solving a social problem, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a company that, that maybe is a little bit old school and just has has a very, you know, earnings per share times growth multiple, right? That's the that's the classic Wall Street formula, right? How much did you earn and how much are you growing? Mm-hmm. If a company has that sort of classic view on things 
and they are a big donor, then how can you not only get a big donation from them, but to put somebody on their board, right? right. Uh, how can you get a big donation and also uh, get a marketing campaign with them, right? Um, how, can you, how can you help them edit their employee manual? How can you help them change their policies? And that's, that's fulfilling your mission as a nonprofit at the same time as it's uh, benefiting them by, um, you know, by, by giving them some of the, these advantages that you know are very real, right? So really just moving past a dollar figure or a check and, and truly becoming partners with some of your donors that are, are looking for that kind of partnership. Yeah, and, yeah, and and really exactly. ingraining yourselves in one another so that everyone benefits from a true partnership. This is the type of thing that comes up in a lot of the conversations on small shop fundraising, mm -hmm. from both you know a, a volunteer position as on a board, talking to leaders in the philanthropy sector across the country, and now also uh, looking at this corporate survey from PwC and talking with you, Mike, about the engagement the ingraining with one another and, and truly become partners. So it's really, it's a really nice perspective that some of the same strategies need to be in place, but we're coming at it from a different perspective, from the CEO perspective, from the top leadership perspective. So I really appreciate you coming on the show and talking about this survey. There's a lot more information on the survey. And so I encourage all the listeners to look through it and see if there's some way that you can garner some information that can help you attract other corporate entities to support your mission wherever you are. So thank you so much, Mike, for being here. Uh, we're going to go ahead and move on to our four one common questions. Mike, are you ready? Let's do it. Is there a limited amount of time to answer these? or? Yeah, I'll just make a big buzzer noise and you'll know that it's time <laughs> to stop talking. Just kidding. No. Uh, okay, so what is one thing that you love most about nonprofits? It's very, it's very real. It's not like the commercial world where I'm used to sort of selling all the time. I'm selling to new recruits. I'm selling uh, to suppliers. I'm selling to customers, right, all the time. I feel like in the in the nonprofit relationships, I'm out in the real world. I'm I'm talking about real education issues in a classroom. Uh, I'm talking about uh, you know real uh, supply chain problems for for uh, an organization that is trying to help a, a, an underserved population. I'm talking about microaggressions that happen in the, um, in the process of finding a job, right? The, right. the things that are just really, really uh, real is the best way to say it. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a lot less varnished and enameled uh, than, than my day-to-day -day job and a lot more substantial and, and, and gritty. That's, that's what I love about gritty. it. That's, that's gritty. I like that. Okay, so what's one thing you love less about nonprofits? Uh, well, being truthful, I feel like a lot of people in nonprofits are extremely self-righteous, uh, regardless of their level of competence. And I, and I know that's a that's a, a it sounds like a harsh thing to say, uh, but you know you get to be self-righteous if you have dedicated your life and work to uh, to your mission. I understand that and I get it. If you're not good at it, I can still criticize you. If you're, you have something that you can learn, I can still tell you something that you could learn and improve from. And I feel like oftentimes we let people in nonprofits off the hook because they are self-righteous and dedicated. Um, but you know what, in the, in the commercial workspace, when I pay somebody to do a job, 
if they can improve, I'll tell them. I'm, it's not an insult to them. It's it's me telling them how to do the work better. And I feel like in nonprofits, oftentimes that's not welcome. And, and um, so again, I, I truly, truly appreciate the devotion that people have for the missions that they're on. And I know they don't need me, so I'm I'm happy for them to ignore me. But um, but we do have to have to treat our guests, our results, our customers in nonprofit or for-profit, those are the people that we're trying to help. And so if there is improvement that can come for anybody that's trying to help deliver the mission, then that should be something that we're open to hearing and listening to. And oftentimes in nonprofits, unfortunately, I find that people aren't. I hope that you continue to do work with nonprofits because there is definitely a need for a person with your capabilities and your skill and what is one resource you'd like to share with the audience? One resource, okay. Just in, in general terms, like a, a, a book or a... Um, yeah, anything yeah. That, I mean, mm -hmm. that we've had, anything from uh, Remember Your History or Look Into History. Hmm. And like We've kind of talked yeah. about that through, through yeah. today's episode right. to networking and that's a, to websites and affiliations. Yeah. And, so yeah. really anything. Yeah, uh, I'm going to say, and uh, and I believe this is, it's truly applicable for a lot of nonprofits. And, and it's, maybe you might not think it is, but but I'm going to say code.org. So code.org is a, is a nonprofit in itself, which is teaching people how to write programs. I believe that it's truly fundamental to any organization to write programs. And you might say, oh, Mike, I'm, I'm good. I don't need to write programs. But if you say that, you're probably already a spreadsheet user. Um, and, and I'm going to guess that, that uh, you feel like there's a giant chasm between using a spreadsheet and, uh, and writing a computer program. But the thing is, there's not. It's not a big gap. And so I would want uh, folks to, to understand code.org and understand Python, um, a, a, which is a programming language. But it's, it's a programming language that's so simple, it's almost like a human language. So I'll give you an example. Uh, I, I was working with a, a nonprofit in Washington, D.C., and they had a room full of people, like literally 40 people, that were browsing the web and writing down basically different resources that they were finding on different websites. They were basically scraping websites to gather information. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of those volunteers happened to be a friend of mine who called me up and said, hey, is there an easier way to do this? And in five minutes, we created a Python script. I kid you not, it was five minutes. A Python script that did the work of those 40 people and all 40 of them went on to do something else for the, you know with the results rather than mm -hmm. rather than copying the data so again look at code.org look at uh, things like python use them in your organization because automating tasks that lots of people do is a better way to to, to spend the money that your organization is getting um, so i would say that that is that is my <laughs> that is my resource to share that's great i think that efficiency is is absolutely applicable to not just the nonprofit industry, but people's lives in general. And so if you can, oh, yeah. if you can find something that's going to help make you work smarter and not harder right. and then redirect those volunteers or that staff to something right. else, that's, that's a donor's dream in my opinion. Right. Well, exactly. And, and, and the opposite is true as well. I, I am as a donor and a volunteer, I'm offended if the organization is doing things, you know, in some horrible way, just because, they know how to do it that way. You wouldn't allow your uh, surgeon to cut you open with the kitchen knives, right? Uh, right? Because that's all they had on hand, right? Uh, and so, so don't tolerate from your own organization, don't tolerate inefficiency 
find out how to do it. There's tons of, of coder geeks out there, by the way, who would love to spend some, you know, some ESG, uh, you yeah, know, environmental, yeah. social and governance hours on, um, you know, on helping you do things. In fact, I know one of my one of my business partners got into business in technology mm -hmm. because he was doing some court mandated time, you know, for for some uh, minor offenses as a teenager sure, sure. and, you know, ended up turning that into a career. So, wow. yeah, efficiency, important. Um, go for it. Use technology. It's there for you. Wow. Wow. What a story. Uh, last question. What is one thing you can point out as being impacted by diversity, equity, and inclusion? The main one for me that affects me every day is actually bias in uh, machine learning. So in other words, machines are, are learning to do everything and they are learning from the examples that we give them. And we face as a society the problem that basically machines are learning the same biases uh, in terms of underrepresented minorities, in terms of inequities, uh, in terms of uh, exclusions. So machine learning is learning those same biases. And so wow. uh, it's been impacted by that. And there is a very proactive effort that's needed to make sure that that doesn't happen, right? So, so a machine learning can learn that certain zip codes have uh, lower valuations and therefore not not authorize loans to build nicer oh, wow. houses, right? That's a mm -hmm. It's a very normal thing and you have to completely avoid that kind of bias so it's very much been impacted by it. Wow. I guess an, another one that I would that I would uh, simply point out is even in my own organization, as a result of Black Lives Matter, we set up a an employee driven employee resource group or ERG we call it, and the ERG's uh, entire goal is to make sure that the whole company is being really good about issues of diversity, whether it's in recruiting or in promotion or in engagement, uh, uh, both for for uh, our own employees as well as our customers again, in providing equitable compensation at all levels and being very inclusive. Uh, and inclusion is one that we often miss because you, you might say, well, I would, I would recruit more underrepresented minorities, but the whole problem is that they're underrepresented. Well, you have to go out and actively include minorities mm -hmm. if you want them to be recruited into your business. You can't just say, I didn't see anybody that wanted a job, so I didn't offer the job. No, no. If, you, if you're hiring, you're out there recruiting. And, and if you want to be inclusive, it's your job to go make that recruitment inclusive, right? If you're serving a population and you want to be diverse and inclusive, you have to do more than just say you want to be diverse and inclusive. You have to go out and recruit those, uh, recruit those folks to be part of the services you're delivering in order for it to be real uh, and, and not just words uh, mm -hmm. on paper and on a podcast. I'm, I'm uh, You're applauding? applauding. I'm applauding <laughs> right now. Okay. No, I think that's great. I think that's a wonderful uh, reminder and maybe even first time for people to hear. You can't just check the box. You have to do the work. Mike Finley has been our guest today. He is the co-founder of a organization called Answer Rocket out of Atlanta, Georgia. And full disclosure, he's also my cousin. So thank you, Mike, again, for being here with us today. Will you come back and maybe we can talk about some of the other things that you're passionate about, including maybe some HR or recruiting conversations? Fabulous. Would love to help. Great. Wonderful. Thanks. Uh, thanks thank again. you, Liz. And this has been Small Shop Fundraising. I'm your host, Liz Hack. Thanks for listening. <laughs>